This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 153 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week we discuss Charlie Kaufman's 2020 film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. So Luke, I, I was actually surprised about to find something about Charlie Kaufman that I did not realize. Um, okay. Would you be surprised if I told you that he's only directed four feature films? Actually, you know what? That kind of makes sense because I know that he was more known as a screenwriter, I think, for, yeah. for most of his career than a director. I think a lot of the things that I associated with Charlie Kaufman were things that he had written, which, you know, obviously right. a lot of the stuff like that he's Like being John Malkovich was Spike Jones, right? Like, I think he worked with Spike Jones a lot yeah. early, early on. His first directorial, like, feature film that he wrote and directed was Synecdoche, New York. Right, which that movie is wild yeah <laughs> i want to see it again that's the case for a uh, lot of his his films and even the ones he writes for sure he is yeah and it seems like the one he directs it's like he can he maybe even goes even weirder yeah i mean it's like fully <laughs> it's fully his vision he's very unique um and that's definitely something i felt in this movie i'm thinking of ending things uh yeah it's it's so wholly his voice it's so he is pushing sort of films along you know he's he's making it so that he's breaking molds and it's like sort of a not a typical narrative film um not and i think in that's, any way is this a typical film <laughs> and i think that that can be hard for some people to, to latch on to but this, this movie also kind of addresses you know how familiarity can be dangerous and, and stuff like that like there's a lot of philosophical things that are talked about that, that originality is something that i feel like comes up a lot in his work like the concept of like pursuing originality and authenticity and then also like how difficult and perhaps even like futile it is to do that mm -hmm. um and i think these are questions that he that he struggles with a lot for sure yeah so the way that this episode's gonna go is we're gonna generally try to talk about the movie a little bit and then we'll move into filmmaker and then we'll do some plot. I have a few sections of plot that we can read and we'll just be reacting to it. Um, the, so the start, we're going to keep it spoiler free, spoiler and kind of free give a yeah. reaction without without anything. And then we'll we're going to have to move into spoilers pretty quickly. Yeah, though, it's going to be very, very light sort of general thoughts. Just like, what did you think of it? What was your experience like watching on Netflix, a feature film yeah. like this on Netflix? Yeah. So let's let's go into that now, actually. You've said it in that this movie is incredibly unique. It is uh, unusual. It does a lot of things that fly in the face of like convention, um, all the way down to like even being in four three aspect ratio, which I thought was an interesting choice. It was like it felt like he was doing it because that is unusual, mm -hmm. and so <laughs> I'm just going to do it because it's weird, and it's going to make you, it's going to signify to you throughout the entire time you're watching it that this is not a different sort of movie. And um, the visual, the visuals throughout, the mood throughout, the all the little weird details that he throws in there, it all was conveying to me, this is a different sort of film. Um, it's going to be difficult for you to compare it to other movies. You kind of have to just treat it as its own thing. Yeah, I think some of it is almost like drawing attention to the fact that you're watching a movie. 
Like there are yeah. there. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that there's a, a movie within a movie in this, and that sort of is another another case of it calling attention to the fact that you're watching a movie. Four three aspect ratio is something that people aren't accustomed to watching anymore, but it does bring right. back memories of watching movies and being aware that you're watching a movie and or television. Television growing yeah. up, like you know, it was often that that four three ratio. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it? I mean, there have been some massive directors on Netflix up to this point. What did you think of mm-hmm. seeing Charlie Kaufman on on Netflix? I mean, it felt like, honestly, to me, that Netflix was the right place for this movie or a Netflix-like uh, streaming service because it had a very sort of indie, um, not big budget feel to it. It's it's because it's uh, it felt like it had aspirations to be exactly what it is and not be a blockbuster. This This movie is not trying to fill theaters across the world. You know what I mean? That's that's not really its goal. It would be very difficult for this to come out in theaters and do yeah. well, you know, and be be widely seen. And I think that's something interesting we see with streaming now is like the platform allows for movies to, that wouldn't have been as accessible to people to be very accessible. And even though it might be a harder watch, maybe in terms of like what you're familiar to, you're more likely to give it to to sort of go out of your way to watch something if you, if mm-hmm. it's just a click away rather than going to the theater. Um, and and in that way, I think it's great to be able to like expose people to different sort of you know art. Absolutely. And uh, as far as the adaptation goes, this was one of the few times, and this has happened a few times for me, but this is this is definitely one where I felt like I wish I could have seen this movie without having read the book first. But also, I wouldn't trade that I read the book first. I wanted to have both experiences somehow, even though it's impossible. I wanted to have amnesia just for the just for a while while I was watching the movie and then come back. Now, I will say the perspective of having read the book really did help me, I think, understand the film more than I would have otherwise. Um, but I, I, I didn't get to go into it like I th- assume most viewers do going, what the fuck is happening in this movie? <laughs> because I think that that's, I could feel that that is where most viewers are going to be at. It's just going to be completely like... Yeah thrown for a loop you just have to you just have to give yourself over to Kaufman and like have him take you on a journey because if you're trying to like I I mean and I think it's the kind of the same way with the story that we read like it was a situation where we we could kind of pick up on hints of what's going on but in in the medium of film it's it's it can be really tough to convey stuff to an audience and if the audience is like and that's another thing if you if I was watching this movie in a theater there's a there's a chance that I would be have been paying even more attention you know whereas like sitting at, in your house streaming something can there can be other distractions dog jumps up on your lap somebody's in the kitchen something like that um hmm. so like there's pros and cons for sure but uh like you I I totally agree I thought like man I, I'm not gonna have the same experience as most audience members coming to this because yeah. I know what's going to happen and I know what's going on and I just wonder how for thrown, the most part how, although he does change some stuff yeah I just wonder how how thrown for a loop I would have been had I I want to know yeah. where I stand as far as like could I have followed along could I have picked up on these things in a visual medium like this or would it have been would I have been lost until the end yeah I do think that there all the details are there that you need to piece together the story yeah um I just think he did more to sort of obfuscate the sort of truth uh or the what is actually happening than even ian reed did in the book like it felt like he was able to convey things more um uh more clearly or more like he he i wouldn't say he handheld but he at a certain point he was like okay this is what's going on ian reed a little bit 
yeah, Ian Reed did, whereas Kaufman felt like he was like, <laughs> figure it out. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you a little bit of details here and there, but uh, I'm not going to help you at all. And, and uh, yeah, I can't really talk about it more without spoiling. So it, it just, um, if you're trying to decide if you want to see this movie, I do recommend it. But, um, yeah, go into it expecting a very unusual experience. Um, look for clues sort of watch it actively um, trying to figure out what else is going on um, and then trust yourself to actually start making these connections. Um, I think if you watch it passively and you wait for it to be explained, sometimes you're going to be disappointed because you won't get that, at least in the adaptation, to, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, I think you just have to take it for what it is and uh, enjoy the journey. But I also think that if you're the type of person who goes into if you're the type of person who isn't interested in digging digging for like sort of the 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 metaphors of what's going on within the story then i don't think that this is a movie for you but i definitely recommend yeah. trying it out even if that's the case i, I think that it's one of those movies that like it, it, you're going to remember it it's weird yeah. and it's crazy and and there's things that happen in it that you're not you're it aren't going to make sense and like even once you know sort of what's going on you're gonna think like well so the artist may have just been doing some of this stuff to fuck with me and that that is yeah. the case so it's funny it's got it's kind of scary in parts uh it's For got sure. good drama Creepy. and philosophy so i think it's definitely visuals look amazing yeah. I, I think um one of the things i would also recommend is pay attention particular to any time they're discussing art in any form yeah because i think those are often clues for like what sort of film this is um i don't think it's a spoiler to say that at one point they discuss paintings and that whole discussion of paintings i kept applying it to the film we were watching um so so yeah if you ever hear them talking about movies talking about creativity art writing any of that think about how that could be applied to this film all right with that i think we should move into filmmaker yeah tell me tell me more about charlie kaufman i've always been a fan but i don't feel like i know a ton about him other than like the sort of character of him that we get in adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear more. Okay, so Charles Stuart Kaufman is an American screenwriter, producer, director, and novelist. He wrote the films Being John Milkovich, Adaptation, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He made I his... love that movie, by the way. Yeah. I keep forgetting to mention that one, but another one where he just wrote it, he didn't direct. Exactly. I, I mean, all of those are great movies, too. Being John Malkovich yeah. is a lot of fun. Uh, he. Sure. He made his directorial debut with Synecdoche, New York in 2008, which film critic Roger Ebert called the best movie of the decade in 2009. Further directorial work include the stop-motion animated Anomalisa and I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Anomalisa, another amazing sort of like mold-breaking, like you think of stop-motion animation and you think you know what it is. It's not like that at all. You're, it's just, it's hmm. a Charlie Kaufman. I haven't seen that one, but I, but I want to. Yeah. I didn't even know that that was him. Yeah. In 2020, he made his literary debut with the release of his first novel, Antkind. Hmm. One of the most celebrated screenwriters of his era, Kaufman has been nominated for four Academy Awards, twice for Best Original Screenplay for Being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, winning for the latter, Best Adapted Screenplay with his fictional brother for Adaptation, and Best Animated Feature (laughs) for Anomalisa. Wait, his fictional brother also won it? Yeah, Best Adapted Screenplay in parentheses (laughs) with his fictional brother for Adaptation. Oh, that's, that's too good. Um, 
I think he was just nominated for for adaptation. So yeah, they were both nominated technically, his fictional brother okay. and he. Uh, and Best Animated Feature for Anomalisa. He also won two BAFTA awards for Best Original Screenplays and one BAFTA award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Three of Charlie Kaufman's scripts appear in the Writers Guild of America's list of the 101 greatest movie screenplays ever written. So his Kaufman's early work included um, a comedic writing comedic articles and spoofs for National Lampoon. He his work included parodies <laughs> of Kurt Vonnegut and X Men. Uh, I mean, I love Kurt Vonnegut, so that's funny to know that he did that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, interested in and like literary Kurt Vonnegut would be considered literary, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, he's he's literary sci-fi sort of satirical writer himself, so it's interesting to do spoofs of of a satirical writer. Yeah. Uh, He then sort of started to break into TV. He sought, he pursued work on series such as Seinfeld and the Larry Sanders show, The Simpsons and Mr. Show, but wasn't able to get any work on those. And you think about like that, that sort of it's he's that's all comedy, but it's also very like legendary smart comedy, right? Like that's what comedians look to and they say, oh, my God, Mr. Show, Larry Sanders show, um, The Mm -hmm. Simpsons, like early Simpsons, Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, It's interesting, too, because I do think he has an he he can be quite funny with his writing when he wants to be. I mean, I wouldn't say that like you go into a Kaufman movie expecting it to be chuckles the whole time mm-hmm. but like being john malkovich like that's a genuinely funny movie at, at points for sure so i definitely think it, he's got movie. a certain com- comedic flair that is that really works right and and it's whether it's like irony or sort of like absurdism absurdism for sure uh he he definitely has a good hold on like being able to blend dramatic and comedic scenes and like something mm-hmm. off-putting and how that can make you laugh even though you don't understand why necessarily so around that time that he was trying to work on, you know, those legendary comedic shows, he actually did get work with the Dana Carvey show. And I don't know how much oh, you know yeah. about the writers and people involved and performers of the of the Dana. Wasn't Com- Conan O'Brien on the uh, one of the writing team on that one? I don't know about Conan O'Brien, but it was Louis C.K., Robert Smigel, Greg Daniels, Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell. Oh, OK, yeah, yeah, that's who it was. I was thinking of. I think it was Colbert who I was thinking of. Right. Yeah. So, like, I mean, think about those people went on to do a lot comedically and yeah. and even dramatically with Steve Carell and, and you know, running shows, yeah. Greg Daniels, that kind of thing. And then he tried to get some pilots done for Disney, tried to get some pilots done for HBO. But eventually he decided to sort of shift into films and he got, you know, wrote the screenplay for being John Malkovich, got in touch with Spike Jones. That's so wild that that was like his bit for like his breakout break into the right. scene movie because that movie is so ambitious and so meta and just just bizarre yeah i don't know that's, well, that's impressive stuff and i think it's cool to think about somebody that's you know in comedy interested in this like like you know deeper comedy like like not surface level uh and to shift it and have it be yes comedic in nature but also like just a fantastic film like just like heady yeah. concepts that like people weren't doing at the time and kind of breaking breaking what people think movies can be and like fourth walls and you know especially and i don't want to take anything away from spike jones too like we covered him uh with where the wild things are and yeah. you know i don't think that's his best movie but like that guy's a great filmmaker i mean to- so. her is one of my her has got to be in my top like 25 movies ever her really yeah that's okay. that movie's amazing uh i haven't seen it so yeah another one of those movies i somehow missed <laughs> i also like to see like really interesting artists come together like spike jones and and uh, charlie kaufman coming together is a marriage and made in heaven you know like that's that's the sort of stuff that you want to see is like two people that you respect individually come together and make something like that 
Well, and that's a good segue into talking about this adaptation because this is not an adaptation in the sense that adaptation the film was one. <laughs> this right. is a lot, a lot more faithful. Um, a lot of the meat of this story, a lot of the, a lot of the words on screen um, that come out of these actors' mouths are written in the book. Yeah, um, there are certainly lots of additions, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I thought this it was interesting to see Kaufman do a pretty faithful, relatively adaptation. Yeah, and it was. Um, I do want to say, as we shift into this, this is going to be our spoiler warning. We're going to start moving into okay. plot details. We're going to start moving into spoilers here. So if you haven't seen it and you're there, there are many spoilers to be had. So if you are interested in it, I would suggest checking out and coming back once you've seen it. Or if you're not interested in that, here we go. We're going into spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll read this first bit of plot. A young woman contemplates ending her six-week relationship with her boyfriend, Jake, while taking a trip to meet Jake's parents on their farm. During the drive, Jake attempts to recite a poem he read when he was younger, Ode, Intimations of Immortality, and pressures the woman into performing one of her works in the car to pass time. After she recites a morbid poem about coming home, they arrive at the farmhouse. Jake takes the young woman to the barn where he recounts a story about a maggot-infested pig. Throughout the drive, as well as later scenes in the film, the main narrative is intercut with footage of a janitor working at a high school, including scenes where he sees a musical production rehearsal and a dance in the school's hallway i uh, was immediately taken with the view the visuals we were getting I, I think i posted uh something to instagram about it and it does a lot to evoke a dreamlike quality um the way that <laughs> even in the car it, it always felt like the the exterior was sort of out of sync with mm-hmm. what was going on inside mm-hmm. like and i it, like sometimes that's like a, a um they're failing to uh, sort of create verisimilitude with the way that it's being shot. But here it was like, no, no, that's intentional because everything just feels a little off. Mm-hmm. Um, and and she, the way she, her mind would wander, our main character, who is a, either a Lu- Lucy or Louisa or all her different name names keeps changing. Yep. Yeah. So she's like, she keeps like drifting off and thinking of things. And then um, I thought it was really interesting the way he would have him sort of interrupt her thoughts as if he could hear them. Oh, yeah. was the sure. way that I was always getting that implication, which, which I thought was cool. I felt like there were multiple things and we are in spoilers, so I don't want to spoil the ending completely, but I do want to say there are multiple things that make that I think the editing is done in a way where characters react too fast to each other. Yes, I was noticing that too. They're they're like responding like before the person can even finish what they're saying. Exactly. So there's that going yeah. on. There's like this surreal quality to to everything you're looking at. And like dreamlike is very much I think I think that works really well. And I did this reminded me of something just now. Have you ever dreamt in a different aspect ratio? <laughs> Have you ever had a dream in like a 4-3 ratio? <laughs> that sounds like a filmmaker thing for me. <laughs> no, man, I, I, don't, I don't dream in any aspect ratio other than normal life for me, personally. I don't know what it is, but I think that there's, there's beca- like, I think dreams and dream sequences in movies have a certain language to them that I think have has infiltrated my dream sometimes. Like, so I think like, you know, there's like your typical TV ones, like the ripple as like, you know, like a ripple into another scene everything's sort of moving <laughs> you're telling me you're getting transitions in your dream yeah and then like but but also like also like different i i felt like this aspect ratio spoke to my dreams like i was like i kind of felt that way that so it's funny that you mentioned well, yeah. dreams yeah i think that's just that that sounds like somebody who spends a lot of time uh looking through camera lenses to me because yeah. that, that definitely has never occurred for me but um that's funny that that does that that's interesting yeah um and one of the other dreamlike things was how they would like 
all of a sudden appear at places like mm-hmm. abruptly, like almost like interrupt what they're saying and oh, we're here and they're like turning the car off. Yeah. And it was like, what? And that was very dreamlike too, where like you're just all of a sudden at a place. Time doesn't right? make sense. Nothing really makes sense. Yeah. It, it's just yeah. all like on top of each other and like nonsensical. There was a conversation they had in the car and this gets a little bit into spoilers, but we're in spoiler mode here um, where he starts talking about her as being ideal. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was sort of a big clue, you know, having read the book, we know that she is sort of an idealized woman in, in many ways. I wanted to ask you, because I, I feel like this conceit is, is it's it's heartbreaking. It's, um, I mean, I guess sad is just another word for heartbreaking, but it's <laughs> sad. And um, we, we have, you know, the janitor here, um, which is interesting because it clearly is the janitor's story and... Um, Jake is sort of a facet of him. I was a little more unclear about that in the book, um, whether the janitor was the like quote unquote real protagonist or not. Right. Um, but I guess it does make sense that it could be. Um, but uh, in the movie, at least, it felt like he was. And the idea of this idealized woman being sort of the main character of this film and then not even being quote unquote real, it does feel a little, little bit problematic to me like it's a little bit sexist i don't know like mm-hmm. it, and it's okay to me it's okay because it's like the character is it, it's like it's, it's he's putting so much he's pinning so much on rom- romantic love and that being like sort of the only reason to live and yet it's something he's never really found um that manifests in in luis uh or lucy um and his pining after her is one of the most tragic things about him because he's he's pining after an ideal. Um, but on the other hand, it is reduce it is sort of reducing women to a concept and sort of like, you know what I mean? Like it, it I guess it's 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 tr- it's muddied. Um, and I just want to, yeah, I could see like I could see people watching it and being frustrated. Like a woman yeah. watches this and being frustrated, right, right. That, especially that that's who she is. And I would say especially from a sort of surface level viewing of the relationship between these characters, if you take it at face value, for sure. Um, but I, I guess I wanted to talk about you're you're leading me to a huge, a huge, probably my biggest takeaway from this is the way that this this move, this adaptation, this movie recontextualizes some of the things that I think are going on by changing a pretty fundamental part of it. So I think that there are many, many references to movies. There's a movie within this movie, and there's yeah. sort of a character. We're seeing this main character who's who's going through all of this t- is, is actually very interested in movies. And I think that from the perspective of somebody, and, and, then, and then there's conversations within, within this movie that say, ownership of women and what it's like to to be a woman and um how society how you know i think there's a line where it's like movies are society's malady or like some, something like that and how like mm-hmm. movies are shaping society and what how people think they have to live their lives and how that can put stress on people's lives and i think we're seeing the perspective of a character who watches movies to see the example of what life should be like and is having yeah. to deal with that on a day-to-day basis and at the end of his life or after all things all of these things have happened He's seeing idealized versions of women that he sees in movies. He's seeing, you know what I mean? He's seeing all of this yeah. I- idealized life that he that he was pining for. And I think for Charlie Kaufman as a filmmaker and a writer to have recontextualized the story to be also about movies and society, of course, is always going to speak to my sensibilities. I like that. And I think that does take it to a place where I'm more comfortable with the con- with the conceit because Kaufman isn't 
presenting it as like this is the way it should be he's presenting it as tragic he's telling the story of this character who has a fucked up view of the world and a fucked up view of like of women like you said he's idealized them he's all the only romance he's had has been through the movies he watches so of course the character that he imagines is too good to be true she's you know she's sort of zany she's beautiful she's brilliant she has many different jobs she's also into art she's a poet she's a painter you know what i mean it's like there's there's way too much you can't you can't com- even contain it in a single person um and that's i think a- an indictment of this point of view of this of this expectation that this guy is putting on women in films he's calling bullshit on films exactly of perpetrated by films um which of course this is a film with this sort of character in it so it's like it's that meta discussion of like uh you know i'm I'm sort of embracing the thing i'm also skewering here a little bit too right because it's in my film Mm -hmm. the arrival at the house was uh a really interesting <laughs> series of events. Um, really creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the waving in the, the way window. The way that the parents didn't come down. Waving in the window. Oh, going out to the barn. Man, the, and, the, and the, the anecdote about the pigs was just as um, upsetting and, and memorable as it was in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and comes back into play later. And then, and then yeah, the, uh, the introdu- introduction of the parents. Uh, you know, David Doulis and uh, Tony. Tony Collette. Oh, yeah. They just fucking killed. They're it. so good. Yeah. Stealing scenes. They they did such a great job with these bizarre characters, um, shifting personalities throughout, shifting ages. Um, I just thought those performances were were really spectacular and and sort of worth the price of admission, totally. so to speak. Yeah. Even though it's just uh, you know what nine ninety nine or whatever <laughs> a month, fifteen ninety nine, whatever Something. Netflix is these days. Yeah. The. Uh... <laughs> I, I totally agree. The 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 major four characters in the movie all absolutely kill their performances. Agreed. Great performances all around. But like you say, Tony Collette and David Thewlis are scene stealing. The range that their characters are able to have, the different life, <laughs> you know what I mean, the different life points that we see, the different like ailments or not or sort of like uh, snapshots of time and all this. It's unbelievable. Tony Collette is absolutely one of my favorite working actors. Like, um, yeah. she's amazing. And uh, she's amazing, man. And David Doulis is too. He's also amazing. I mean, yeah. I, he's incredible. They looked like they were having so much fun, even though like it's not it doesn't take away from their performance. But they just looked like they were fucking hamming it up and just having a great time. Well, and I, I genuinely think that they approach these roles as entirely different. Like the mannerisms, the way the speech patterns, all of these things, like every single time we saw them since they were in a different point in their lives, seemingly. They t- had imbr- there was a totally different character. Yeah, and it was so relatable. Like uh, that was one of the things that, even though there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in this movie, it's basically all smoke and mirrors. Right? Yeah. Like we're not even sure that any of this ever occurred. In fact, it probably didn't. It's all sort of theater of the mind, I think. Yet it is relatable because we've all had the experience of going home and having things be different. And it's that written into a creepy sort of almost cosmic horror story about aging and about uh, the horrors that wait for you at home that maybe you felt like you've left behind but are there waiting for you, right? And gosh, just the way the the conversation they have about painting and the way uh, his father 
uh, keeps <laughs> talking about like how can you be sad if you don't have a person in it and just like yeah uh, which by the oh, way art, like, like is layered yeah. with extra meaning I think too but yeah the, the all the discussions about art were so funny as someone who writes personally too mm-hmm. because it's like you often will have this disconnect where it's like people just don't get it you know um, and you can tell and there's and you also feel this gulf of like there's no way I can make this person understand what oh, I'm yeah. trying to do totally well it's I mean just it, impossible. I mean it's, that's a, an example of what I talked about earlier in this episode Charlie Kaufman's addressing the audience watching this movie you know what I mean the people exactly. who are gonna walk away from the movie saying like oh it's bullshit it doesn't mean anything it's all it's the dumbest movie I've ever seen you know what I mean and he's literally yeah. saying like you're the person who can't see the landscape you know what I mean you can't see put yourself in the <laughs> yeah. landscape yeah, he's like, yeah, imagine yourself in the landscape. Look down, you can see us. So it's it's true. I, I do think he's speaking to the audience there. But like, I, I, I'm not. I don't. I feel like there's going to be a good number of people who watch this movie, feel like they get it, and still don't like. No, it. No, totally. And I think that's totally valid because it's okay to want a certain thing from a movie and to feel like this does not deliver. Yeah. Because I could totally see that. Like this movie. Like if you went into this wanting to see a, a, a story about this woman who's in the trailers, who is like struggling with her own, you know, uh, mortality and and maybe her own mental state, and then there's sort of this bait and switch happens, mm-hmm. and it's all about this janitor. Um, that could I could see that just turning you off on right away. No, no matter what else goes on, like that's not what you signed up for. Right. So, so I, I do want to leave plenty of room for people to dislike this movie. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I do think there's a lot going on here and there's a lot you can delve into. And even if it's not for you, um, I, we always try and come from a place of like recognizing what, what the artist is trying to do and like whether or not they are doing it well. And in my opinion, Kaufman is doing it well here, whether or not it's for you is another question. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I would say that this is just like sort of, you can't go into this and be like, this movie is going to be A, B, and then C. It's going to be, it's an experiment. It's a full on experiment for the audience, for the filmmaker. Your mileage is going to depend on how interested you are in a new experience or something that is jarring at times or, or purposely convoluted if that makes sense Mm -hmm. purposely convoluted feels like a good description for this movie (laughs) let me let me read this next section here inside the home the young woman notices scratches on the basement door at dinner with jake's parents the woman who is described as having different occupations tells the story of how she and jake met at a trivia night told with narrative inconsistencies later she notices Mm -hmm. a picture of jake as a child but becomes confused after recognizing that child as herself the young woman receives another call and a mysterious male voice explains that there is one question to answer. Jake's parents begin to transition back and forth from their younger selves to elderly dementia patients. When the young woman takes laundry down to the basement, she discovers several identical janitor uniforms in the laundry and receives another call from the mysterious voice. I mean, there was a lot of inconsistencies here, and, and, and I was noting them throughout. You know, she talks about how all oh, this looks like the house, the house I grew up in. And then later she says she grew up in an apartment. Mm. Um, you know, she grew up on a farm at one yeah. point. She said, "I remember her saying, like, yeah. I grew up yeah, on a yeah, farm.'" Yeah, yeah, and, and and then she completely sort of undercuts that. Um, and then yeah, just how awkward the interactions are with the parents. Um, how she'll also uh, okay. So I wanted to ask you this. This was a, a, a interesting sort of camera thing that I wanted to talk to you about and mm-hmm. see what you were what what your take on it was. Like what was trying to be achieved? Sure. The the camera um, to me at times, especially in the house, felt like it had a mysterious motivation. Like it would it would move to something before it was 
relevant to the story, and then it would become relevant as the characters like either arrived at it or or used it. And it was it was sort of off putting because it felt like the language that I'm used to in movies probably don't do that. Like the the, the camera is probably follows logical flow, whereas this was like in advance, almost as mm-hmm. like a premonition of what was going to become important. To right. The characters. So when teaching, like when learning and teaching about about film, you want you don't want to move the camera just to move it. You want your motion to be motivated. So when it's not motivated or it's motivated by something that's going uh, going to happen, it doesn't make any sense to yeah. the viewer, like you're saying. So it's like it'll like go to a couch and then somebody will walk into frame and sit down on the couch and you're like, yeah, what and the like hell? the characters are still talking and having a scene right. that is moved away from. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think that just goes to show that sort of like in your head dreamlike quality of, of the film that we're watching. Yeah, yeah, it definitely conveyed a uh, sort of unease and um, surreality, you know, to everything. It, God, it just it, it it constantly told you like this is really unusual, and um, I think if you are someone who is going to be really tied to the idea of like what you're seeing being like sort of objectively reality, mm-hmm. and and not sort of open to the idea of this sort of dreamlike scenario, um, this could also be really frustrating in a sense too, because you could feel like you're sort of being lied to. Um, but it, in my opinion, it, he's, he's tying it back more to that, um, impressionist, uh, art, which like, you know, the dad, you know, hysterically says like, I could be an impressionist mm-hmm. artist. <laughs> and, you know, like so many people have that attitude about I it. I mean, you people know? say that. Yeah. I mean, I've heard it come people out of people's mouths. Time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so cringy to like people who actually do that because it's completely, uh, underselling or misunderstanding what goes into it um and and i think again that's that that whole conversation to me was very much about this movie (laughs) it it comes down to like are you someone who can understand art or are you someone who who is more analytical on things and i'm not saying that it's an either or i'm just saying like it might be a spectrum or something like that and i think that there are people who haven't had the exposure to something to sort of or like have been confronted because I think art is all about questions, right? It's all about like what questions you're asking about it, what questions it's bringing up in your mind. And if you if you haven't ever used that muscle before, you literally might not have the sort of language of art in your mind to even like attempt to to engage with something like that. So so that does bring me to another point though I wanted to make in in that this movie does feel a little bit pretentious. Yeah. And um, this conversation feels that way, too, a little bit to me. It feels a little bit like, you know, you either get it or you don't. And if you get it, you're cool. And if you don't, you're not. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I know we're not trying to say yeah. that, but it, but like the movie kind of is like that. I can see it. Yeah. And so when you, when we're talking about it and we're saying that we got it and we're saying that we liked it, it kind of feels like we're trying to be sort of elitist about it like you have to understand this kind of film Yeah, we don't want to be like gatekeepers of the knowledge or anything like that i think it's more about like as people are exposed to it it's not like they it, it, like i said i think it's a muscle that you that you like you're exposed yeah. to it and you and then it's sort of like a like a level like you go up a level and and i think and that's what it's been for me my whole life because it's like i wouldn't have understood this you know years ago so I, I don't yeah. and I don't blame anybody for not. I just I would like to see people who are willing to engage with something. And I think that willingness will allow you to to engage with it further and further and further as time goes on. Yeah, I mean, like that's I guess that's where where I'm at, too. Like, I want to invite people genuinely to embrace things that are challenging to them as a as a viewer. 
Now, I understand not wanting to watch that stuff all the time. I wouldn't want to either. Right. It would be exhausting. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just want to watch a Marvel movie and feel entertained, you know? Like, But, like, every now and then, like, something like this, I think, is really good for us as as, as people who watch movies and, and, and you know, study art and, and read. Every now and then, it's okay to read to, to read or watch something and have it be almost incomprehensible and to feel like you have to really work at it to to figure out what's going on that's something that i always like i'm always bummed when i hear people say like i never watch a movie twice or something like that because i think like Mm. uh i know that people because i'm on a surface level like you know the plot and you know what's going to happen within the plot but are you willing to engage with the things like the the, how the director placed the camera? and you know maybe this is just like something people who aren't interested in film aren't interested in some people just want the entertainment value um yeah but Repeat viewings for me are always, always, you know, if I absolutely hate the movie on every level, a repeat viewing might not be fun. But if I enjoyed a movie and it's been five or six years since I've seen it, rewatching it, you're going to you're going to find something new. Like you just you always do, no matter how many times you've seen something. And uh, that's why I like to hear people who are like, oh, I didn't like it my first time, but I gave it another shot, watched it again. And I think I got more out of it. And maybe you still don't like it, but it's the sort of pursuit of, you know, trying to engage with things. So how about that uh, film within a film that was directed by Robert Zemeckis? I know, apparently. that was so funny. I can't tell if he's taking like a full-on shot at Zemeckis or if it's, or if it's sort of a, like a love, like a, you know, love letter to him. Yeah, I don't know. I was going to ask you if you thought that was a, was a slight at Robert Zemeckis or, or I have not. to assume it was. It was probably like a playful nudge, if anything. You know, yeah, I'm sure Zemeckis yeah, yeah. is going to laugh if he didn't Zemeckis already Zemeckis is um, like Back to the Future, right? Yeah. 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 So which which is like one of the most iconic films ever, especially in America. Yeah. And is very it has a lot of this sort of like I don't know, a lot of these kind of romantic tropes, I guess, that he was playing with. Um there might be other specific movies maybe he was he was lambasting, I don't know, with this because it's it's after this sort of diner scene mm-hmm. where this guy like loudly proclaims that the waitress is actually a vegan and you don't even know, and then she gets fired, but then they're like sitting together outside and like they hold hands and then it's like Directed by Robert Zemeckis, which was pretty funny. <laughs> and then it's all sort of within within this movie. All, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, because like, like the janitor the is watching, watching the movie. that scene exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then at times, um, she even like the actor who who's playing the love interest in that movie swaps out with our actor here too, right? Like throughout the film at times, and uh, it's yeah, it's definitely trying to say like. This is his idealized woman, uh, you know, that he has been he's built on the like lies that media have told him. And then I think it's really telling and really sad how he really craves um, acknowledgement. He wants someone to 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 give him credit for the work he's done, for the life he's lived, for the thoughts he's had. And he wants someone to love him for it. And all of those expectations are just built into this woman that he's created in his mind, essentially. That's and that's my read of it. How about the 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 voice, mysterious voice? Like obviously we know what it is having read the the book, but you know we you hear the voice in the very beginning of the movie. There's like a man like looking out a window as she's like getting in the car yeah. to go on the trip. Um, and well, then, I think it's the janitor first, and then it morphs into um, Jake. Okay. In, right, I think at one time it's the janitor, one time it's Jake, but both viewed from behind. Okay, uh, in like that, for, like you're saying, like as he they're like he's out looking the out the window at her. Yeah, gotcha. very interesting. Yeah, um, they're both from behind, so you don't ever see their face. Right. But I'm pretty sure it was it was both of them. Gotcha. Um, and then you know we get the phone call in the car, not wanting to answer the phone call, not wanting to engage with the, what's being said on that phone call. 
So the phone call stuff, I felt like made way more sense in the book. Like it went more, it went to more places and it was more satisfying when like it came back around and there was like an explanation and Mm -hmm. the question that is posed by the voice gets answered in the book. (laughs) Here it is left as a question. It gets answered sort of thematically and, and if you read between the lines kind of deal, but like it's directly answered in the book Um, because the question is said to be all living all living creatures especially people i guess are asking themselves whether they want to go on or stop and at the end of the book he answers it that he wants to stop and that's when he commits suicide um and that still happens in this but we're never presented with that in that way where it's like told to us that that's the question that was being asked on the phone yeah um so that there's just a lot more ambiguity here i think definitely i think there will be people who walk away from this movie and come listen to this podcast and you saying that he committed suicide is still not clear to them so you like yeah we've like that's that is what happens in the book if you if you weren't aware of that and so that sort of recontextualizes everything that happens in the book and the and what's gone on in the movie and why everything's sort of scattered and and like sort of an internal uh, struggle that's going on. They're also at one point she is sort of touring the house upstairs. She goes into Jake's bedroom, and I wrote down some of the things that we see because I thought they were all really interesting and telling. And it's like I paused it, which is something you can only do in Netflix. If you were watching this in a theater, you wouldn't be able to do it. But we see Jimmy's Ashes, which is the name of the dog. So I think that that's very telling, right? Um, we see a book called Elements of Physics, another book about virology, which she has mentioned being a virologist at a certain point in time. We see a collection of Wordsworth poems. Um, but then I thought a really interesting one was uh, the film A Beautiful Mind. There's like a DVD of it, I think, sitting on top of it, which if you've seen that movie is all about sort of a, a shattered psyche. I'll just leave it at that, mm-hmm. um, which I think was de- deliberately told because I saw at the very end of the movie because I don't know if you watched all the way through the credits. Mm, um, no. Yeah. yeah. So if you watch all the way through the credits. It's like it's like blurry for right. a while and then it actually crystallizes for a minute and you see the scene again um, and there's like some sounds and stuff. But then like interesting. It, then it Wait, the scene. Uh, so I, I know you're talking about was like a blue. It's like blue and blurry at the beginning of the credits. And then so slowly yeah. it like fades into at the end of the film. It's looking at the frozen car. Gotcha. Okay. And then it's like blurry while all the credits are rolling. And at the very end, it, it comes clear again for a minute gotcha. for like a, a few seconds, I guess. Nothing really happens except for you hear. It sounds like another car arriving or something is all you really hear. Gotcha. And then it cuts to black. Gotcha. Um, but what I was trying to say was <laughs> in the credits, it specifically says like a beautiful mind licensed by blah, 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 blah. And it's like gets a credit in the you know what i mean so they had to pay to get that get mo- the permission movie yeah. in the scene and um yeah or at least get the permission and that means to me that like it was important and it was put there for a reason Definitely. also the thing is a movie that is on there it was, in there. Wow. was interesting. interesting yeah it was in there huh. um there's a bunch of red titles with white lettering that had like kind of weird names um which to me felt like memories or something but um one of them was called unforgettable mishaps mm-hmm. one was called a futile effort at success one was called Lasting Memories of Sorrow. Um, so there's a bunch of these like w- weird stacks of these like uh, I assume are like Jake memories or something. Yeah, like the annals of the of the memories and the minds and sort of like like bookshelves and that kind of thing. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It felt like she was touring Jake's mind essentially, yeah. or the janitor's mind. And then she does find the poem that she read or recited and finds that it's actually written in a book. So there's all this like wild stuff, yeah. which. Um, it, it, the, I guess that's the one thing I'll come back to is that I'm never quite sold on the Luis and Lucy character. It's I think it it it, it 
it's harder to get behind in a movie than it was in the book. Um, but the idea of her being like almost a sentient being who is becoming aware of her own unreality and like, oh my God, you know, like, why am I seeing this? I don't, is it not me? And like her confusion, like it only works in the sense of like a beautiful mind scenario. Let me just say that because it, in a, in a sort of healthy, um, more uh, typical sort of mind. I don't think this is a this isn't a way our brains work. Yeah, but like you said, um, I think the the refusal to answer the call, the phone call, is the same as not wanting to engage with the question that needs to be answered. You know. Yeah. And so it's like this, like like you said, it, it kind of is like a, sh- a shattered, separate sort of personalities within that are that are arguing this these points, and then this this specific one doesn't want to address it. And seems to be like the the like continued want for life and like uh, in, in a way represents like maybe like the happiness, the good things and, and it wants to continue on. And so in that way, doesn't want to engage with the janitor who represents like the, those thoughts or like Jake who represents like maybe the the other parts that aren't as happy, you know, like they're the struggles yeah. and things with the family that have gone on and all that kind of stuff. On the drive home, Jake mentions several events of the night that the young woman does not remember, including her drinking too much wine. Word association soon leads to an extended discussion of John Cassavetes, a woman under the influence. Finding themselves in the middle of a snowstorm, the pair stop at Tulsi Town, an ice cream parlor. They meet employees who are also students at, at the school the janitor works in. While the young woman buys the dessert, an employee with a rash attempts to warn her of something she can't describe. Jake stops at the high school to throw the cups away. In the parking lot, Jake notices the janitor watching them from inside the school and decides to confront him, leaving the young woman alone in the car. After a long wait, she decides to look for Jake inside the school. She meets the janitor and, among other things, tells him that nothing happened between her and Jake on the night they met. After the young woman discovers Jake at the end of a hall, they look on as people dressed like themselves engage in a dream ballet, which ends when the janitor's dancer kills Jake's dancer with a knife. Uh, did you notice that when uh, he passes the money to the the woman with the rash, the mm-hmm. girl with the rash, his he hands. has a rash on his hand too? Oh, no, I didn't. But I did notice something else about the hands. When he starts the car at the beginning of the movie... And when his hands are shown multiple times, he his hand. I think maybe Jesse Plemons just has these kinds of hands, but I thought they were elderly hands. No, it, 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 for sure, at least one or two times, yeah. it is it is like an old man's hands right. for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean it's very interesting stuff like that going on. Um, are we to are we to understand then if he had the rash on his own hand that? this is sort of a memory of himself. Maybe he used to work at a place like this. Maybe he was this kind of person who was picked on. I did want to ask you, because I still am kind of trying to grapple with this in the book and in the movie, what does this ice cream shop represent other than yeah. other than sort of introducing that character who is being bullied? Why, like, why in this story, it seems like the thing that stands out the most to me. Why, was it just plot related or is there a metaphor that I'm not picking up on? Like, I can't, I can't. I think there's a metaphor. I, I can't quite unpack it completely, but it's very tied into death to me because um, it's it's beckoning him throughout the movie. We, we've, we've heard this sort of uh, jingle. We've seen the welcome, you know, the, I think at one point we see a sign that says welcome to it. And, and it's this sort of beacon of light in the cold darkness. And it, to me, it's, it's like 
his conception of what death might be like in some way and and it's it's beckoning him on but there's also like a meanness there so he's not sure if he really wants it he he comes to it to like get a cold treat and it's like i think the idea that it's all cold and there's not really any warmth to be found i Mm -hmm. think shows that like he's conflicted about it whether or not this is something he actually wants and then yeah it's like there's also like there's there's people making fun of him there, but then there's then there's kind of like representation representation of himself. So like it's all complicated. I'm not really sure how to unpack it, but um, I think later on when he's in my opinion hallucinating or like having his final moments, he remembers the commercial for this place, yeah, which is all about coming here and getting ice cream, and it's like as he's approaching death. So I think once again, it's tying it back to it, right? It's this like dream, like idealized version of something like the afterlife i don't know yeah, and i know it's, i know in this movie it's not bl- it's not dairy queen and blizzards but in the book it's literally getting a blizzard in a blizzard like you know going yeah, to get and it's so, a dairy queen so like yeah i'm not really sure like how yeah in a cold world like you said maybe there's something to do with like the cold the cold world still seeking out something cold still seeking like cold death yeah. i don't know um, but then he's also like he doesn't he's like it's always it's sweeter than he remembers and he can't finish it yeah. and he has to throw it away and I, I don't know it's like there's something going on there too um, I think you you could maybe unpack it if you watched it again and then wrote an essay about it yeah <laughs> Which I feel like I'd have to do at least to unpack it maybe people got it more than I did I'd be interested to see if you want to write in ink to film at gmail.com or comment on a social media or something um I'd be curious to know takes on that. Like if anybody has a theory about like what that represented within the story. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, we, in our, in our book coverage, we talked about the high school and like how they're they're in the book, they're trapped in the, in the high school. Uh, I think that this, if there is a part of the movie that would lose people who understood the movie, it's going to be mostly this last bit here. Um, Yeah. It was a bold choice. (laughs) Um, But before we get to the dancing, I did want to say there was a particular thing in the the car that I really liked when they were talking about um, perceptible light and how um, there is no color in the universe other than like Mm -hmm. what our brains interpret and all this stuff. And then like while they were talking, the scene was just getting darker and darker and darker until they were almost fully in shadow. Um, And I I just I I love that kind of like the way the world was reacting to their conversation, which was itself very interesting. And I think indicative of like what this movie is trying to talk about. You just reminded me of something that I meant to mention way, way back. But one of my favorite moments of just playing with the form is when the entire movie is very cold in color temperature, Uh, getting in the car, driving to the parents' house, and then they get to the parents' house and they meet the parents. It's still very cold. And it's not until they go into the dinner scene Literally, it's like a cut. It's like a reverse shot, and then we're getting the shot into the the into like the dining room as they as our main character walks in, and it's super warm. Like the entire color temperature of the film shifted. It's all of a sudden there's like there's because they have like candles lit and stuff, and it's like warm. And there's they still could have they could still could have shot it and had it maintain that same color temperature, but they went warm with it, which is super jarring and super dreamlike and super all of the things that we've talked about. Just yeah, yeah, moment. and then that—I mean—and then the fact that like she, I don't think we ever see her actually eat any food other than until like later when she's eating some of the blizzard. But like she doesn't eat any of that food, and then even when the dessert comes out, I don't know if you noticed, she was like always she does pound she, wine. She does drink wine, but but when when he came out later and they they serve the dessert, all we ever see her do is feed Jake and yeah. not ever herself. That's true. Yeah, so that was interesting. 
yeah. Anyway, we're <laughs> we're jumping all around, but um, so one of the things that they're talking about in the car on the way to the school is about this idea of we live our life vicariously through what we're watching through movies, right? It's almost like through a screen, through glass. And then it, it is like sort of we're, we're taking meaning almost by proxy from like the things that we're seeing. It is talking about like wanting to watch beautiful people do things. So there's a lot of interesting discussions about what it means to be beautiful and what sort of uh, status that gives you in our society. And um, there's discussions about like why it's, he says, she says, is it better to be young? Because he's talking about how young people um, are sort of um, attractive and, and uh, full of life. And, and, and um, he says, yes, it is better. Because um, old, and he talks about these reasons why old is bad. But I think it's really interesting that she really values elderly people. And um, I don't know, there's just like a really interesting discussion about like what it means to get older. And, and and the weird, uh, yeah, the, the talk about like all all important art being made by young people, um, which like I I bristle at that a little bit because I, I I personally, even though I'm like I'm more on the younger end, I would say, even though I'm not you know like a Generation Z or anything, but um, I I don't like the idea that only valuable art is being made by young people. I, I balk at that every time I hear it, and I I think that's reductive, and I think that. It is super depressing and um, almost silencing for older people who have things to say that, like, we should be embracing. And it's crazy to think, like, you're only going to become a better artist as time goes on. Like, I know that the, there, there are things to show to to the contrary. Like, I know people, like, I, I know specifically Tarantino swears that no great filmmaker has made a great film past a certain age or whatever. And, like, again... I wonder I, if he still feels that way. I think he does. I think that's why he's going to get out. Like, I think that's why he's he's gonna he's gonna stop when he's gonna, once he's done all of his movies. Around. Well, but I don't necessarily agree <laughs> with Tarantino on that one. Ex- I mean, I don't necessarily agree with him on on a lot of things. A lot of things, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, absolutely. He, uh, I just bring that up because it's like you know that some of the smartest people in the world are older than you like you know are elderly people they've been through more they've experienced more they they've had more time to to educate themselves on things and so this idea that like a good good art can't be made and and it also comes into the idea of like people i guess as people get older they probably have more money and like like something about the the same thing was people say well like you have to be struggling you have to be a struggling artist Mm -hmm. to create good art and all that and it's all it's all just like trying to put people in boxes which i'm never you know interested in doing so i mean it's like i can see the points being made um there is certainly we've all met people who feel very out of touch with like society (laughs) like they've they've they're they're sort of locked in their like older view of the world and they're unwilling to participate in like society as we know it now and i think that is always a dangerous place to be but you that is not you can be that and at a variety of different ages Mm -hmm. um but i think you can be very dialed in and participate and understand society and be able to talk about it in ways no matter your age it's more of just an effort on your part to stay open and to and to continue to follow follow what's going on um, that's one thing. But then the other, the other thing with the age, as a creator, I want to live in a world where every time I make something, I can feel like, well, the next thing I make is going to be better. <laughs> right. Um, it, it, and, and, and throughout your career, 
I'm going to, I'm going to be able to achieve something even greater this time, or I'm going to be able to do something different. I'm going to be able to challenge myself rather than when I was 25 or when I was 30 or whatever age, you know, insert your age of choice. I made the best thing I'll ever make. And then I'll, I'll always just be a shadow of that, of that grand, you know, self. And, and that's so depressing. Like, I don't want to look at art that way. And I don't want artists to feel that way. And we know that there are great stories that are written and great movies that are, are created that don't get the attention that they deserve because they just didn't hit society correctly. And so it's like the idea of like, take Stephen King, for instance, the idea that he writes something like it, or he writes something like The Stand, or he writes any of that stuff, and then he can no longer create anything better than that um, because society has deemed those his best stories. And like, it, it just it just becomes really tough because you're only going to learn as you create, you know what I mean? You're only gonna learn what you like, what what you think works and what doesn't work and continue to act on those instincts as time goes on so that's it's a weird intersection i mean we're getting well well kind of almost off topic here although i feel like this is within the bounds of what this movie is talking about but i think the second like interaction with the way fandom works a lot too because like when you have a lot of success early people tend to try and like put you in a box and say like this is what this is and they hold you to a standard of a previous work in many ways and so everything will always be compared anything you do later will be compared to that original successful thing. Um, and it's like, it's self-defeating in a way. Like I wish people didn't do that, even yeah. though I know like that that's what people are going to do. It's what's comfortable for people. Everybody, people, people look at people, read a book by its cover, put it in a box, think they know what they're talking about. And, uh, but I mean, I, let's just, let's get back to Charlie Kaufman here. The guy yeah. directed this film and this, this line, all of this conversation was not in the book. So this is Charlie Kaufman directly engaging with this stuff. He he, he, he he introduced a lot more meta stuff, a lot more about movies and and authenticity. Like I don't know when you would consider elderly. Like I know he's not elderly, but he's sixty one. So it's no, like he's, he's directing yeah. a film at sixty one, and it's later it's, like, it's later in his career, right? For sure, and and so how is he engaging with that sort of idea as, as a sixty one year old filmmaker? He's not young. Well, I mean, the intimations on mortality and, and aging and all that stuff is absolutely, I think, it's, you know, baked into it. Yeah, it's interesting that Ian Reid is actually a pretty young writer, though. Right. Well, and again, in conversation with like the adapter and the adaptee like sort of like how, the age difference and generational stuff and like what what is universal for people yeah so let's get to the the dancing part because i think that is you know really notable section and um i am not someone who watches a lot of musicals mm -hmm. um and when I heard them talking about it and he lists all of these, I was like, I wonder if this is setting something up. And then it sure was. Yeah. Um, it felt like this was like trying to sort of introduce this, this, he loves musicals. So at the end he's imagining his life as a musical. He's imagining this dance between himself and this idealized woman as a musical. Um, and it was okay. Mm -hmm. um, it might work more for other people than it worked for me. Um, personally, this is one of my least favorite uh adaptation changes from what we got in the book this was not this isn't how it went down in the book mm -hmm. um i don't know i kind of liked the i kind of prefer the way it went down in the novel i guess when they were when he was in the I school the, the more like i don't know it, it was probably really hard to put on screen because it was incredibly fun house dreamlike bizarreness was happening when he was in the high school um whereas here it was it was sort of changed into a musical to get, achieve that same effect yeah, uh, tons tons of stuff to talk about here. So what I would say is as time has gone on, like I like musicals at this point in my life. I, there was a time when I didn't like musicals uh, as much. And like it took me 
sort of like understanding film history mixed with like some of the influences that, that come in play because um, some of your earliest sort of surrealist things that happened in film were things like Busby Berkeley style in musicals. So if you've ever seen a musical where it's like it's they're in a scene and then like a black drop happens and then everything opens up and there's like a thousand dancers dancing behind and they're all dancing uniformly and in sync. It's like this surreal thing that couldn't have happened within the reality of this world, but in this musical, it's surreal. So I think mm -hmm. that, I think Kaufman is engaging with that sort of surrealist behavior. You're right, for sure. And the idea that, yeah. the idea that this person who loved movies, who was an elderly person, when musicals were more popular in the past, um, and like that's the kind of thing that he would have engaged with. Like that's the kind of thing that would have meant a lot to him. The fact that they bring up Oklahoma, the fact that they bring up all all those musicals, um, and what they mean. Um, I also like don't I I don't think that it's like necessarily the most exciting way to end a movie. But there is also a lot going on within the dance because dance is an art like paint a painting. It's all visual, no words, no text. Nobody's telling you anything. It's entirely interpretive. So like to have an entirely interpretive ending because there aren't lyrics going on. There's nothing to tell you what's happening. It's all visual. Um, I, I mean, and, and like you said, degree of difficulty, like the level of difficulty that's there. A lot of things being juggled and I think executed well. I, I agree with you kind of. I, I think that the book ending is sort of more palatable and like interesting to me, but like that's not to take away from what Kaufman, I think, achieved with this. And if I think this is for film people, you know, I think like that the kinds of people that are going to respond to this is people that like are especially if you like musicals. I, I like that. Actually, I really, really like that take because I think you're right on. I think he is he's playing with the like essential surreal nature of a musical because like we know that it's not real life. Um, it's it's and it's somewhere between like a stage play and a movie at times, and that's always kind of like a weird place where it operates that is that is unusual and very particular particular to film. And um, yeah, it's almost like the movie is shifting mediums in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, but it kind of is. It's it's shifting modes into like now we're interpreting a dance rather than watching a movie, right? Um, even though we're we're still doing both. Um, I think you're right. I think that's what he was going for. And um, yeah, I mean it it's probably personal bias. Um, also, I do recognize that musicals themselves are not really a genre as much as just like a style. Like there's so many, there's a wide range of different kinds of stories that can be told and, and to call them all musicals is almost reductive. Like there's, it's just, yeah. there's, they're so night and day different from one another often. So when I say I'm not a biggest fan of musicals, it's mainly just that when I see someone singing and dancing in a movie, no matter what else is going on, I struggle to connect with it personally. Um, and I know that that is, that is kind of like a personal bias I have, but I know that others, others share it as well. So you might, you might sometimes encounter that, um, you might encounter that at the end of the There's day. definitely going to be people who don't like musicals, but I will say like with everything, exposure to it, I think will make you like appreciate it more. You know what I mean? Like everything. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. So, uh, the other thing that happens here at the end is, uh, our main character hugs the janitor tells the story of, of how she never actually interacted with Jake. And I think that is um, Jake sort of coming to grips with the fact that she is, is not real and is more of this idealized creation. Mm -hmm. um, and then I love there was a line where she compares him to like, why would I remember a mosquito that bit me 40 years ago? Mm -hmm. And I think that does show like a little bit of you want to like, give the character of Lucy a little bit of credit. It's that I think Jake even recognizes that his his imagining of her is fucked up. Right. And he doesn't actually know her and he didn't he didn't make a difference to her 
she you know she doesn't remember him he knows that they were less than acquaintances yeah. you know what i mean it was a glance yeah. it wasn't even an interaction necessarily so i i, I want to say that that's him recognizing how fucked up this whole thing is i did have two other little small small sentences to read uh having finished his shift the janitor suffers a mental breakdown and begins to hallucinate visions of jake's parents as well as an animated tulsi town jingle he undresses and walks back into the school being led by another hallucination of a maggot infested pig who tells him that he and his ideas are one and the same and that he should get dressed yeah so uh are you familiar with um paradoxical undressing no. Have you ever heard of this? No, I don't think so. So this is a real phenomenon, and I think this is what he was referencing here. Um, in victims who are um, sort of succumbing to hypothermia, um, about a quarter of them have been found to paradoxically undress and then do a behavior that I think it's called like hiding and burrowing. Often people will like go and like you know get under a table or get under a log or something, and they'll like burrow into try and burrow into the ground, and they they're found dead like that. Wow! Um, because if you get to this point, it's very like you're probably gonna die. Um, and the theory well, and is it's also that, like animalistic. Like it's almost it's yes, seems, it's very animalistic. Yeah. So so the theory is that your internal core temperature shoots through the roof as it's trying to combat hypothermia. Um, even as it's like drawing all, like you're losing all blood to your limbs. So you're starting to, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to lose your hands and feet and stuff. Um, but as this is happening, you feel incredibly hot. And then I think you also get, become very delirious and sort of out of touch. And so I think this is what we're seeing at the end of this movie. I think he, he decides to commit suicide and much like he does in the book, except for a different method. He decides he's going to not turn the car on. And succumb to hypothermia, which the uh, Lucy character had previously mentioned, like, how long does it take to die from hypothermia was in her mind. Um, And then as that happens, I think that's why he undresses. I think he's referencing this phenomenon. Um, He undresses and he looks like he's hot, right? Like he looks like he's like, oh, he's peeling his clothes off because that's how you feel, um, apparently. Um, it's a, it's a weird phenomenon. It's something that is very difficult to study because the circumstances in which it happens are are almost always leading to death. So you can't you can't really replicate that in a, in a lab or something. Obviously, ethically, so well, not not a lot is known about it. But I wanted to, I wanted to ask you like is it worth it to try and like talk about what we think quote unquote actually happens in this movie? Because I have theories about like that essentially and that's i think he does i think he dies in the car yeah i don't think he ever leaves the car. i agree yeah i think it's all it's all sim him so he hallucinates the pig and then him going inside and then the big sort of award ceremony that we get at the end where he sings and everyone claps for him that's all a dream that's all his like and it's not just a dream it's his death dream and i think that's as he's going through the final stages of hypothermia where he's like hallucinating and and kind of going into this like euphoria right before death yeah um and then and then what waits for him beyond i think is an open question you know the book actually i think ends on a um maybe maybe a more depressing note of like it's more bleak implying that maybe he hasn't found any escape at all yeah whereas in the movie it felt like the depressing note is that he died but i don't think we're left with the sense that he's like trapped in a cycle of eternal like self-hatred or something which is 
I don't know. So anyway, that was my take on the ending there. Uh, to respond to a lot of that stuff, I think you're the idea that he died in the car is backed up by the fact that like the snow that's caked on top of the car is we look at that a lot. So clearly, like he's still yeah. in there. The at door, the end, that's I think that's the main thing to take away at the very end is when it shows the car, it's like covered in snow. The door hasn't been open. Been if the door had been open, that yeah. the snow would have fallen off. Some of the snow. Yeah, would've. and the fact that it's staring at the car, I think, is also indicating like he's the in body's there. in there. It's not inside. Exactly. Yeah. So there's that. Um. I think this is a, a place where, again, if, you, if you're not picking up what Kaufman's putting down, super fucking weird. People are going to be turned off by this. They're going to be like, he's walking around naked with a maggoty pig in front of him and like super yeah. weird. Uh, I, I get that. I, I understand that um, because it is weird. But it's yeah. also like, yeah, it represents a lot of the things that have happened throughout the story. Um, he's likening himself to the maggoty pig. Right. You know, he talks about life is difficult on the farm. He's he's saying my life has been difficult. I feel like I am a pig who is filled with maggots and is being eaten alive. That's his own sadness and his dissatisfaction with his life. Exactly, and not to mention like he's talks about like his father putting putting the pigs out of their misery and stuff. And like he is obviously thinking of things like that. He's miserable. Um, which yeah. is super, super fucking bleak. Well, the other thing is the frozen, I just thought of the frozen sheet. Yeah. Right? They're frozen solid. And like, I think that's another sort of like uh, foreshadowing of what's what's to come, right? And, and she's worried about them. And he says, oh, they're fine. Don't worry about it. They'll, they'll be fine until summer or whatever. Like, don't worry about the frozen sheep. So uh, I did have this last section. On an auditorium stage, an old Jake receives a Nobel Prize and sings a song to full audience of various characters who give him a standing ovation. In the sh- final shot, the janitor's truck is covered in snow in the parking lot. Towards the end of the credits, the sound of an engine turning over is heard. Yeah, that's that's what I was saying. So the engine stuff, I wasn't sure. Like It sounded to me like another car. But I guess you could interpret it as maybe he didn't die and he, turn- he was turning the car on himself. Crazy, but like... Yeah. It sounded to me like a different car driving up to find him. Gotcha. But I think it is. It is I, I, obviously it's amb- am, you know ambiguous. Um, so I think you could read it either way. Maybe maybe he wanted to. Maybe Kaufman wanted to to introduce a slightly more hopeful note of like maybe he tries to commit suicide here, but but survives. Well, the somehow. ambiguity. But I would also say if you get to the point where you're stripping off your clothes and you're and you're engaging in this sort of behavior, the chances of you surviving are basically. Well, zero. like, are you gonna be able to like comp? comprehend the idea of putting the keys in the car at that point you know like it seems like i don't think so i don't i don't see how he could have survived i agree but there's ambiguity there if people wanted to read it that way i wanted to engage with the nobel prize stuff so he you know Mm -hmm. it's talked about like scientists artists all of these things like he's accepting a nobel prize as if he's like made a discovery and then he and then he shifts it into artistic singing which he and then like all of the things that he wanted to to um accomplish and everything in that moment uh and i also felt that the makeup was a very interesting choice for everyone in the crowd and yeah. everyone there it's very like gaunt like almost like ghost-like or skeletal yeah or, what were they trying to do with that yeah. Yeah. is that like everyone dead know. is that like you know but and, and then again it's like it's very stagey that's his life there though right. like, it was very obviously makeup it wasn't trying to like convince you that there was something other than makeup on their face yeah so one thing i keep thinking back is how this guy wanted to be seen, to be recognized, and to be celebrated, for better or for worse. And I think a lot of people feel this way. You know, notably at the end, people in the audience are a lot of the kids that he saw at the school, but then you have this idealized version uh, uh, of Lucy, and then you have his parents. And then that really showed me how he wanted his parents' approval, even though he could never get it. And um, the, the conversation at the dinner table showed me, like, how they he was 
I think he was a genius. You know, I think there's a reason he's being compared to all these other like great writers. And, you know, uh, I think we, we had a, we had a, a genius who grew up on a, a farm whose parents didn't understand him. You know, the way his mom would like brag about the genius version of the, of the trivia, even though it was a genius and how upsetting that was to him. And it just showed that like they were incapable of sort of recognizing him in that way. But it's they're there at the end too, though. It's like he he still craved their approval, um, but he wanted approval that where he felt like they understood. And I think that's what he gets at the end is them clapping and looking like they understand what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 heartbreaking, and it's um it's I think it's this is all just an insight into one character's sort of mind and like the things that he wants out of life. Yeah, and right before death, he gets it in this version of a reality yeah uh since we're at the end here i did want to read this conversation that i read or a section of it between charlie kaufman and ian reed and then we do need to talk about uh which we think is better the book or the movie Um, yeah so here's the conversation charlie kaufman says it's funny people don't get the ending of your book sometimes i've read things online where it's like well what happened i don't understand it's curious ian reed I always say, and again, I think this is something that you and I are similarly aligned on, that people can interpret it however they want. They have as much authority as I do to say what it's about. People have been quite emotional with me about what the ending means to them, and they want to know what it means to me. Sometimes they almost want to argue with me, this is what it has to mean. And I think, well, Mm -hmm. it does for you, and that's valid. But for me, it means something very specific, and that's okay. That is... That probably is the same with the film. Charlie Kaufman says, I feel like any work of art, any creative work, exists as an interaction between the person who created it and the person who is experiencing it. They bring to it what resonates with them based on their life experiences. If you spoon feed stuff to people, then you don't allow for that process. Therefore, it's a lesser experience. Yeah, I like that. And I agree with that. Yeah, and the philosophy of these two people, like obviously like how they feel about stories and people engaging with it. Um, and I think if you have that knowledge there, if you know that that's how these two people feel about art in that way, I think you can go into their movies or their stories and appreciate them for what they are. Um, even if like the plot or, you know, the mechanics of the story or even the ending doesn't necessarily work for you. It's interesting that that people will have a really different take on it. I mean, I've I've tried to stay out of the discourse because I didn't want to be affected. Like I really haven't consumed any other any other reactions, um, although I've seen several of them out there. And I'm going to be curious to dive into it. People who, most of these are done by people who haven't read the book. They just watch the movie and then talk about their take on right. it. And um, I wonder how I'll be able to, if I'll be frustrated because I already see several out there that I <laughs> like seem like I'm going to disagree with. Um, I don't know. I'm just really well, interested to see. I'm, I'm going to be curious to, to listen to some other podcasts trying to dissect this. And yeah. And maybe people got really different things out of it, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, like like they said, like it's it's okay. This this is what I got out of it. You know what I mean? Like, but maybe I mean as I'm saying it, I recognize that this in many ways um, could apply to things that are going on in my own life. So maybe I am bringing a lot of myself to it. I mean, and it's going to be tough for us and people who listen to this podcast and people who have read the book because you have to you have to take if somebody's only seen the movie, you have to engage with them and you can't say, well, in the book, you have to engage with them just exactly. at the movie level. And, and, and that's that's a good point. That's something we don't talk about enough. Like it's sometimes there's a way to talk about a movie where you bring the book in as outside knowledge and say, like, this can inform what you've seen. But you can also talk about a movie and it, regardless of the of the source material and say that that almost doesn't apply to the movie 
because the movie doesn't say, hey, go read this novel first. It's required reading to understand this film. That's not set, right? It, it, it should be engageable on its own, by itself, without reading the book. Absolutely. So it is completely valid to, to not bring any outside material at all and talk about just what's on screen. I contend that, uh, the, that all the pieces are there. I just think they're a little bit harder to put together yeah. in the film than they it's were It's definitely the a puzzle. And it's like, if, if you don't have all the pieces, it might be frustrating. You know, you might have one piece left out and not really be able to put it all together. And that's why, like, I think repeat viewings, people will like this movie more. And I think... They're... You know, one, one, one thing that, that also comes up is, I think, a sympathy for creative struggle and, 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 and a need to want to be creative and authentic and and um feel like you've done something worthwhile like i feel like some it is somewhat universal for sure but like i do think this is going to speak more to people who are trying to be artists in some way than it does to people who aren't and since we both are <laughs> you know what i mean like it's going to speak to us pretty directly. and that is as a lot of art is also you know like the, yeah. a lot of art it, it does tend to sort of be like patting itself not this isn't necessarily a case of that but there is a lot of patting itself on the back like like yeah. this well I, actually this is an example this movie i think people who like film will like this movie more yeah but it is also it is also an indictment of that it is a little bit too, well it is at the same but time. like i say like if you bring in the knowledge of musicals if you bring in the knowledge of yeah. like all these references that they're making throughout if you're if you're drawing the parallels to the film industry in that way you're probably yeah. gonna like it more and and like art tends to, like writers love to talk about writers writers love to read other sure. writers and, and so like it is funny how art is that way um it's almost like we're just all sort yeah. of like an echo chamber like sending art at, at each other and well stuff. and that's directly in the movie right they talk about like the idea of like being authentic and how you're we're all just quoting each other and then throughout the movie several times he'll say something profound and then they'll say like oh isn't that a such and such quote you right. know so even though profound things are being said are our, our are quoting someone have else. you seen this have you read this like we're all very much like just eating the snake eating its own tail kind of thing yeah which like and that's a cynical I, way a certain of looking point of view that can be cynical and can be and be depressing but like to me i i have a lot of counter arguments for why that's actually not depressing but i think we need to move into uh we're running low on time so let's move into our judgment of which was better uh who wants to go first on this one um up to you i can go first if you want Okay, so um, Charlie Kaufman is a filmmaker that I've, I've enjoyed everything he's made um, and a writer that I've enjoyed most uh, everything that I've seen the, of his that, I, that, that he's made. Um, I really liked a lot of aspects of this movie that ask people to, you know, put more effort into their viewing. You know what I mean? I respect him for, for wanting people to stretch muscles that they don't use often like engage with something on more than just a surface level do a repeat viewing like understand film language and what things mean within a scene um and for that reason i'm taking the movie in this case because i like i identify with that stuff more and i think that he's able to do things that i, I think the ambiguity that he leaves in the film I think that the way that visually he's able to play with it, it's always going to engage my brain and like make me feel like it's towards my sensibility. So I liked what he brought to it. But I did say in the book episode that this is one of my favorite books that we've read for the podcast. So, so not to take away yeah. from Ian Reid's book. I wasn't sure where you're going to go because of that. I kept remembering you saying that. So I was like, I wonder how he's going to go. And I thought you were setting this all up for a big, you know, but, yeah, but. <laughs> so, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. So you went with the movie. Uh, man, this is... um. 
I, I say this every time, but God, this is a hard one for me to choose. Everything you said about the movie is true. Um, I thought this was a very good adaptation. I struggled because I know that I read the book first, so it's going to get sort of a boost in that the a lot of the reveals are going to be at their strongest the first time you experience it. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I was able to like watch the movie with a, with an eye that was really interesting. And like, I could go back and read the book now and I feel like I'd have a ton to bring to the novel for a second read that would be really fun. Um, because I think they're both great and, um, going to be highly divisive and a lot of people aren't going to like them, but man, I like them. I like them both. And, uh, it's, it's honestly the closest I've come to just saying this is a tie and throwing my hands in the air. Um, it's the closest, but I'm going to force myself to choose. And in doing that, I'm going to give it to the source. I'm going to give it to Ian Reed because so much of this is his story. And he created it. And um, God, if I just if I have to break the tie, it's going to him. Um, I loved I really loved reading the book. I enjoyed the hell out of it. And uh, yeah, I'll give it I'll give it to Ian Reed. I'll give it to the And novel. like, yeah, like we've said, in the book episode genre blending horror literary like all yeah. those things are very interesting i think the book's scarier maybe yeah too. it is um there's definitely a lot of creepiness and off-putting and like weirdness going on in the movie but it never got I think to the horror. creeping horror yeah. and dread was was stronger but because the janitor is is frightening in the right. book whereas in, in the janitor is is a lot more likable and, and sort of um i don't know like you don't you don't you don't hate him when you're seeing him on yeah. the screen whereas he was fucking creeping outside a window and watching her and like all this weird shit in the book. Um, anyway, yeah. that's another difference, but here we are at the end. Um, what a fun project. I really enjoyed doing this one. I'm glad we were able to tackle it. Um, we are going to be taking off next week. I want to go ahead and say that, but we're going to put out a from the vault episode. I'm not sure exactly which one yet. We'll make that decision later. So you'll see it. You'll still get something. You're going to get a front of the vault. So like a previous patron exclusive will now be on the main feed. You'll all be able to check out. And then we are going to return with Lovecraft country, which I'm very excited. Yeah, about. I can't wait. I've been hearing everybody talking about it. So I'm, I'm excited to wade into it and be able to to start giving our take we're going to read the book and see the see the show yeah both obviously. can't wait i think that project is going to speak to our sensibilities a lot i think you know we're very Absolutely. interested in this as a subject and like the little that i know of it i'm excited about and then everybody's just raving about it how great it is so i'm, I'm so excited to get into the book and the tv show so if you liked this episode please let us know in the form of a rating and review wherever you found it um maybe if you're on youtube make sure to like the the episode subscribe stuff like that um this is just like these kind of like little smaller movies that maybe aren't as like widely um viewed or read um we love doing um even though they're they're not usually our most engaged with episodes so anything you guys can do if you like this sort of stuff to help us get more eyes on it if you know somebody else who watched this movie and you think they might enjoy this coverage share the episode with them like we that would be great so uh please do that yeah, and also be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. Uh, also join the Council of Inklings on Facebook because we post polls for upcoming projects that we might do. We post uh, any sort of adaptation news that we see, any TV shows coming up based on source material, anything like that. Uh, it's a great way to engage with us, and you can send recommendations to us that way. 
Um, so check that out. And if you'd like to support us another way, we can go to, you can go to Patreon where we have tons of bonus content on there and other rewards for different tiers. Definitely check that out. We, we do a new bonus episode every month. We'll be doing another one this month. Um, it's a great place and, um, you know, just a couple bucks and you can really help us out. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. Uh, time to go drive into the snow and <laughs> get lost and wind up at a, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, and like driving on a dark road, whether it's rain or snow or whatever it is like that, that's very universal. Everybody's done that. I feel like, um, and it can be yeah. pretty scary when you get out there into the country. You know, yeah. nothing else. Well, nothing and if you're by that. yourself, like the thoughts that go through your head, right? Like is, is kind of writ large in this movie. Like it's, you know, personified yeah. in a way that conversations you might be having with yourself. Totally. So and I assume that's what essentially is happening, right? It's like him driving to and from the school and, and thinking about things. I don't yeah. know, maybe. Um, anyway, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad we got to tackle some Kaufman. We'll be back with more Kaufman in the future, I think, because we really want to do adaptation and then that's going to be a, a fun one to get into. Yeah. Um, but this is just a little bit of a taste of what we might get into with that one. But until next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.